Philippians chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 5 to 11. Pay careful attention to God's red word. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I once heard a pastor, I give him credit if I could remember who it was, but he pointed out something interesting, that we ask a question, this question, what were you thinking? Only when people do things that we consider to be very, very foolish or wrong. We say to them, what were you thinking? And we're trying to get into their mentality that caused them to say or do something so foolish. But this pastor pointed out that it would be much more instructive for us to find people saying and doing excellent things and try to get into their heads, try to get into their mindsets. When we, when we catch somebody doing something amazing, stop them and say, what, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? Because I would like to understand that mindset because I'd love to be able to duplicate that sort of action or that sort of behavior or that sort of talk. What were you thinking? Well, this idea of thinking, the mindset, is all through this letter of Paul to the Philippians. We've already seen it come up a number of times. The, the idea of the importance of, of the mindset of the Christian, the thinking of the Christian, and we've already seen that in chapter 2, where he's already told us to have the same mind, to think the same thing. And this whole chapter is really about Christian thinking, Christian mindset. What were you thinking, Christian? But here we have what in some ways is probably the, the apex of the whole letter. The whole letter can, can, can be identified as... as going out from this, this, this section here, because this section is a description of the thinking of Jesus. It's a, a description of the mindset of Christ. And so we here we have the, the greatest example of, of thinking and how to think, and then what comes out of that kind of thinking. In verse 2, he said, have the same mindset, and here we see what that mindset is. Which is that mindset? Well, Paul's language is, is very compressed here. And by the way, this is the section of all of Paul's writings about which the most has been written. This has is, this is, this is caused scholars to write an abundant amount of, of, uh, of literature, some of it helpful, and others of it, it, it kind of has lost its way. But we will be looking at, at this, but remembering through the whole thing that this is an exhortation. 
This is not a theological aside. This is not, okay, now we're going to do theology. This is the exhortation, and this is the reason for the exhortation about having this same mind in ourselves. But we start immediately with something of a translation difficulty because the language is very compressed, and it's, it's poetic language here. He says here, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'm still getting used to this version, the English Standard Version. If you're used to other versions, you might think that this sounds wrong. It sounds different because in other versions, you read something like this. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And here it says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The, the difficulty is that there's no verb there. Uh, if we just read it very literally from the Greek, it says, This think in yourselves, which also in Christ Jesus. And so to smooth that out, we need to add a verb. Which what? Was in Christ Jesus or which is yours in Christ Jesus? And you will find a vast amount of literature debating this point. And I've gone back and forth in my mind, and then I've decided that it doesn't matter that much. <laughs> But I, I am now, at this point, preferring the New American Standard, which says, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. But it doesn't matter that much, because the ideas are similar, particularly when we keep them in this context. And that is this. There is a mindset of Christ Jesus, or in Christ Jesus, that we have and should have. That's the basic idea. And we know what this mindset is. He's already described it in verses 3 and 4. Look at 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves. So we already know what the mindset is. Now we have the supreme example of that mindset. And in this poetic section, some call it a hymn, in which we have the maximum exemplification of this mindset that we ought to have as Christians. Full of theological concepts, but the purpose is to teach us how to live with each other. How to treat each other in the church. So we have two sections. We have the humiliation of Christ, verses 6 to 8, and we have the exaltation of Christ, Verses 9 to 11. So the exhortation, verse 5, the, the humiliation, 6 to 8, and the exaltation in verses 9 to 11. Verse 6, who, speaking of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And here there's a great deal of, of differences of interpretation, but the idea is not that difficult, although it is very exalted. And that is this, that Jesus did not use his divine privileges selfishly. That's what fits best in this context. We've already told, been told to have this mindset of humility, counting others better than ourselves, more important than ourselves, preferred to ourselves. And now it says that Jesus did not hold on to his divine privileges as something to be grasped and not let loose, but rather he didn't use them selfishly. And we find out here, well, he didn't give them up. He gave himself up. Verse 7, but emptied himself, emptied himself. Now, it's easy to ask the question, he emptied himself of what? But actually, it's simpler than that. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. This is a metaphor. He poured himself out. He gave himself up. 
In the NIV, it says, the New International Version, it says, he made himself nothing. And that captures it very well. It's not that he gave up certain characteristics. It's not that he ceased to be what he was, but rather he poured himself out. And then we, we have an explanation of how he did that. He took the form of a servant. Now, this is shocking. It says that he was in the form of God. And then it says he took the same word form of a servant. What's going on here? The one who is God becomes a servant. And then he explains how he took the form of a servant, being born or being made in the likeness of men. He had the appearance of a man precisely because he was a man. So he who is in the form of God became a servant, the form of a servant, by being born one of us. And then it says, as a man, he did something shocking. He humbled himself. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in the Roman context, you can't get any lower. So in, in these three verses, we have Jesus going from the heights of equality with God, which he never ceased to be equal to God. He is God. But now we have him at the end of this section hanging on a cross, dying on a cross. Now, remember, he's writing to the Philippians. Do you remember that the Philippians were Roman citizens? And they were very proud of the fact that they were Roman citizens. And so we have a couple of references in Philippians to our citizenship, which is a higher citizenship. It's a citizenship in heaven. And here there may be a, a, a reference to that as well. He died on a cross. You see, Roman citizens would not have died on a cross. The Philippians themselves were exempt from dying on a cross, no matter how heinous their crimes, because they were Roman citizens. They would not have been crucified. Crucifixion was reserved for slaves and for foreigners. And so it says that, that he who is equal to God became a servant by becoming a man, by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death and death of the most vile and lowly form, death on the cross. It's, it's really quite surprising, not to us, because we're used to the cross as a Christian symbol, but it's really quite surprising and shocking that in the New Testament that this was not a point of embarrassment. They're taking this message to the Roman Empire, and they're preaching about a Savior who died on a cross. Now, you would think they would do everything they could to avoid that, that they would say, well, he died a terrible death. How did it happen? Well, let's, let's not talk about that. I mean, it was, it was over in Palestine. It happened a while ago. Let, let's not talk about how he, he died. But no, instead of hiding that as an embarrassing fact, the, the first Christians, and we see that all through the New Testament, put this forward that, that God, who became a man, died on the cross. Far from being embarrassed about the fact this was the message of the gospel. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the word of the cross, another word for the gospel. This is our message. They called it the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, what? Crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Then he says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What do we see in the cross? Looks weak, doesn't it? Looks foolish, doesn't it? And, and Paul says, through that foolishness, through that weakness, God saves those who believe. Why? Because in all of our strength and in all of our wisdom, we weren't able to obtain salvation. And so we have the cross of Jesus Christ, which is both wisdom and power from God. That's the humiliation of Christ. Before we move on to the exaltation, we should reflect on what his humiliation means for us. How does this function in this argument? Remember, this is an exhortation. This is not bare theology. This is living. And what does it mean for us? And it's, a, it's one of these very common how much more type arguments that we find all through Scripture. How much more? And it goes like this. If Jesus humbled himself from the greatest height to the lowliest depth, How much more should we humble ourselves the little tiny distance it will take for us to serve each other? That's that's the argument. If Jesus stooped from heaven, we who call ourselves by his name certainly can stoop the little tiny distance that is necessary for us to serve each other. And show preference to others. In Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, um, he went to Gulliver in his travels, visited the island of Lilliput. And in Lilliput, the people averaged six inches tall, the Lilliputians, little tiny people. And he was, of course, a giant there. But as he got to know the Lilliputians, he found out that they were very divided among themselves. There were some who wore high heels. And there were some who wore low heels. Now, if you start out at six inches tall, the difference in the high heels and the low heels would be a question of millimeters or perhaps fractions of millimeters. Barely perceptible, the difference between the high heelers and the low heelers. And then they were also divided among the big Indians and the little Indians. You see, the big Indians, following an ancient practice, cracked their eggs on the big end of the egg. The little Indians, they said, no, 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 that's not how you do it. You need to crack your eggs on the little end of the egg. And so they were divided, high heel, low heel, big Indians and little Indians. And of course, this is satire. And it's satire of some things that were going on in Great Britain at the time. But it's also satire of humanity, isn't it? Here we are, these little tiny creatures with millimetric differences between ourselves. And even so, we get puffed up with these little tiny differences that we think make us higher than the next. And and that make us incapable of stooping so low as to prefer someone else to ourselves. And then we look to Jesus. 
And we find this enormous distance that he stooped to become one of us, to become obedient to the point of death and death on a cross. And then when we look at Jesus, our high heels don't, don't look so big anymore, do they? These, these little differences that we, we make among ourselves and that we use to, to judge other people and to consider ourselves superior and to avoid stooping to serve them, they, 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 they're seen in their, in their real measure, aren't they? So that's the takeaway here, folks. Have this mind in yourselves. It was also in Christ Jesus. Who didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but emptied himself and humbled himself to give himself on the cross for people like us. Therefore, the argument continues. Therefore, because Jesus humbled himself, therefore, God hyper-exalted him. That's what it says. Highly exalted him. Verse 9. Therefore, God has super-exalted him. God has hyper-exalted him. And how did he do that? By bestowing on him the name that is above every name. Now, what is that name? And here again, there are a couple of ideas about what that name is. Some people point to verse 10. It says, so at the name of Jesus. And they say, well, Jesus is that highest name. But then if you look at verse 11, it talks about confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So some say Jesus is the highest name. Others say Lord is the highest name. Once again, I don't think we need to, to argue too much about this, but flowing with the, the passage here, and particularly in the light of the fact that Paul or whoever composed this, this poem or this hymn, was quoting from Isaiah chapter 45, probably it's focusing on the title of Lord as the highest name. Now let's go back and look at that. We already looked at that. We read this in the service, but I want to focus in on a couple of, of verses from Isaiah 45, verses 21 to 43, which say this, Turn to me and be saved. God is speaking here. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Does that sound familiar? That's, what, that's what's picked up in this section in Philippians. That from Isaiah. Now who's speaking in Isaiah? God is speaking in Isaiah. And he identifies himself with his Old Testament personal name, the name that he gave to his people to, to call him Yahweh. We don't know quite how to pronounce it, but Yahweh. And in our, our translations, it's translated in the Old Testament with capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see that, all caps, Lord, that's referring to Yahweh, the personal name. So in the context of Isaiah, God is saying, I am Yahweh. I am the only God. I am the only Savior. Every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess allegiance to me. And here we have the audacity of the New Testament to apply those verses to Jesus. So what is it saying about Jesus? It is saying that he is Yahweh. He is the L-O-R-D, all caps. 
He is the only God. He is the only Savior. And why did he get that name? Well, in the context here, the context here is because he humbled himself, he has that name, that name recognized in all the earth and that will be recognized in all the earth. He didn't become God. He's eternal God. But because of his career, his pathway of humiliation, there is hyper exaltation and he will be recognized by all creatures as Lord, as Yahweh, as God, as the only Savior. Now, this, these categories here, it says every knee will bow, every tongue confess in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, different ideas about who those might be in heaven, the celestial creatures on earth, those of us who are living on earth, under the earth, those who have died. But however it might be, it is extensive. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. And the end result of that will be glory to God the Father. Now, um, there is a... There is a practical application of this, and that is that if we are all, if we are all, without exception, going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, well, we might as well get on with it now. Because it's better to do that now, willingly and joyfully, than unwillingly on the last day. You see, all of us will confess Every creature that's ever been made will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they will do it in love or they will do it in terror. And so let's get on with it, folks. Now we have the opportunity to confess willingly and joyfully and thankfully that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In his, his book, Human, all too human, Frederick Nietzsche wrote this. He who humbles himself wants to be exalted. Now, I, I don't know much about Nietzsche. Um, he was an atheist, a skeptic, and uh, was constantly attacking Christians. And I think this was a dig at Christians, trying to expose the hypocrisy of humility. He who humbles himself really wants to be exalted. So in his mind, it was all kind of a, a sham. I think that's what this means. Now, how do we respond to that? He who humbles himself wants to be exalted. I would respond by saying, Amen. Exactly. You got it. And what he's trying to point out as the hypocrisy, I think, of, of humility is, is mistaken. Because all of us creatures seek exaltation. And it's not a question of whether we seek exaltation or not. We are going to seek exaltation. We can seek it through humility. We can seek it through dominance of others. But we're all seeking exaltation. That is hardwired into humanity. We are God's image of course we want exaltation. Of course we want glory. But the question is not whether we seek exaltation or not. The question is how we do it. And we can do it one of two ways. We can either 
exalt ourselves and see how high we can we can get ourselves up on our tiny little heels until we crash and burn or we can humble ourselves to serve others and see how high God can exalt us. As Jesus said, exalt yourself and you'll be humbled. Humble yourself and you'll be exalted. If you choose that, that second path, that second option, as your mindset, as your thinking, as your lifestyle, and somebody catches you doing something amazing and, and asks you, what, what were you thinking? The true answer to that will be, although you might not say it quite like this, I was thinking the same way that Jesus thought when he gave himself for me. Let's pray. Lord, we've sung it. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. Amen.